0: You can open your Bibles. We'll be in Exodus, end of chapter 12. To introduce this, I have a daughter. I have three of them. One of my daughters is extremely strong willed. So there was a time that I needed to do a little correction in her life. And so I sat her down and I said, honey, you're going to be grounded. And she looked at me and she said, good. That'll give me more time to read. And I was a little taken back by that. I'm like, whoa. I said, well, then I'm gonna take away all your books too. She said, good. That'll give me more time to sleep. I was like, man. I said, then I'm gonna take away your bed. And she says, good, I won't have to make it anymore and my room will be clean. And I was like, ah, you're crazy. I had to keep upping the ante with her because of her strong will. And you kind of see that in the opening chapters of Exodus. God confronts Pharaoh, who's been doing some bad stuff. And I think God confronts him in order to eventually bring about either repentance or removing, because that's what God does with sin. And evil. Either you're going to repent of it or God will remove it. Those are the two options God does throughout the Bible. And what happens is God keeps having to up the ante over and over. And so there comes this moment where Pharaoh flexes and he says this to Moses and Aaron. He says, if I see your face again, I'm going to kill you. It's like, okay. And at that point, all right. God is like, okay, we're done then. No more grace, we're done. And I've always wondered when I've read that section where Pharaoh just throws it down, puts a line in the sand. I wonder if God could have had 11 plagues or 12 plagues or 20 plagues, giving Pharaoh more chances but because Pharaoh decides, I'm going to flex, God says, okay, it's over. Now I'm going to flex. And we come to the 10th and the final plague. And it is brutal. So let's look at it. Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn In the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captives who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, go up out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. The 10th plague. This is where I say God punches Pharaoh in the mouth. It's over. Knockout, KO'd. And we can look at this and it's brutal and we can object. But here's what the Bible says Psalm 115 God is in heaven and he does whatever he wants. And as humans, we can either protest against God, that's unfair, I don't like that, or you can try to understand through scripture, through revelation, what was happening. And yes, it's brutal, but remember this. Nine times, God had offered a chance, a route of repentance, of grace to Pharaoh, even after Pharaoh had been killing his kids. I don't know if I would be that gracious or that generous. Pharaoh had been killing Israel's babies and yet God gave him nine times. And finally, when Pharaoh decides I'm gonna flex and I'm gonna kill Moses and Aaron if I ever see them again, God says, okay, we're done. And he humiliates Pharaoh because no one will stand in God's presence and boast. That's what the Bible says. You look at Job, the entire book of Job, most of it is Job saying, I want an audience with God. And then in chapter 38, God shows up and Job says, I despised myself. Uh Uh-oh, Isaiah, for five chapters, he's condemning everybody else. Look at all these sinners out there. And then in chapter six, God shows up and Isaiah, the prophet says, I'm undone This is tearing me apart. Literally, I'm a man of unclean lips. You have John the Baptist talking about Jesus. I'm unworthy to tie his shoes. You have Paul who says, the closer he got to God, I am the chiefest of sinners. You have a centurion who says, oh, I'm unworthy to come into your house. You have Peter who discovers who Jesus is in Luke 5 and says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. What's interesting about that is God never corrects them. God never says, oh, oh no, you're not that bad. Buck up, little camper. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And you know what? People do like you. God never corrects them. God doesn't do the self-esteem track. My favorite is Isaiah 41, where Jacob's like, I'm a worm. And God's like, Yeah, Jacob, you worm. (laughs) He doesn't say, oh, but you're a little caterpillar, actually. And one day you'll crawl up and make a little cocoon and you'll be a butterfly and be beautiful. He doesn't say that. He says, yeah, you're a worm, but I'm gonna help you. No one stands in God's presence and boasts. And Pharaoh is finding that out. Pharaoh just got it. He gets owned by God. And he has to call in the two guys that he said, if I ever see your face again, I'm gonna kill you. He's gonna call them in and essentially say, you won. You won. And this is a national sin because what you see is, it says Pharaoh on his throne suffered all the way down to the prisoner who's in the prison he suffered. Know this, when there are bad leaders the whole nation suffers. Did the USSR suffer with Stalin? Mm -hmm. With Lenin? Yep. Did the Chinese suffer with Mao? Oh yeah. Did Cambodia suffer with Pol Pot? Right. Has the United States suffered from president? No, I'm not gonna do that. Bad leaders bring bad things on countries. Pharaoh does it right here. So what are we supposed to do as believers with that? The Bible says over and over, pray for your leaders. And I would say, if you have not prayed for our leaders, local, state, and federal, if you have not prayed for them, you're not allowed to complain about them. You gotta pray for them first because that's what we're supposed to do. So Pharaoh here gets owned and he says this, I love this. He says, bless me. He realized at the end of this encounter with God, he realized that's where the blessings come from. I've been fighting the wrong thing. I've been serving the wrong things. That's where blessings come from. It's fascinating to me. So then now, because of that, we get the Exodus, which this whole book is named after. Verse 33 the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had done also as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and for clothing, And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. That's one of my favorite little statements. Israel marched out of Egypt's front door with dignity, not like dogs with their tails between their legs, not like mud brick baking slaves who'd been under the thumb of a tyrant. They came out front door, head held high like a plundering army. How cool is that? In a moment, they are transformed from slaves to victors. It's awesome. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, no one has it better than us. No one has it better than us. Hold your head high. And when they plundered Egypt, it was actually fulfilling a promise God had made 400 plus years before to Abraham. Where God had told Abraham, hey, I'm gonna give you the promised land, but your people will go into Egypt for 400 years. But when they come out, Genesis 15, 14, they will have great wealth. God keeps his promises. Right? The Exodus. Now they're this victorious army plundering Egypt, head held high, marching out. Everything looks great. But for verse 37, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about six hundred thousand men on foot besides women and children. Verse thirty-eight, a mixed multitude all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to Yahweh by all the people of Israel through their generations. And it's really good, it's really good, really good. And then you almost get this little, uh-oh, It's like Genesis three, as you're reading the story, paradise, and it's beauty, and it's all good, it's all good, and man, and woman, and awesome. And then chapter three, there's a snake. And you're like, what? What's the snake doing in the garden? Uh Uh-oh. You have that same pattern repeated in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went with them. If you were a Hebrew reader, you would instantly be like, "Uh uh-oh, because the word mixed multitude here The root of it is swarm from the fourth plague, the swarm of gnats, literally a swarm of people. So it's cluing you in, Uh uh-oh. Now, why does this group go with Moses? Why did they go? Maybe because of all the miracles. They're like, that dude is killing it, man. We wanna be around him. Could be they were faking it. They were, hey, yeah, we're followers of Yahweh. Yeah, we wanna go with you. Could be they realize Egypt is weak right now. We've been slaves. We don't want to be slaves anymore. Let's get out when the going's good. I don't know why they go with Israel, but they are going to be trouble all the way through the rest of the wilderness wanderings. So they're, uh uh-oh. It's almost like a repetition of Abraham when he is told, leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the land that I'm going to show you, the promised land. Just take your family. Well, who else goes with Abraham? Lot, right? Lot has a last name. It's called trouble. He is a lot of trouble. And and Abraham should not have brought him, but he does. Brings his nephew and it causes problems. Israel goes out. This mixed multitude goes with them and it causes trouble. We're gonna start Proverbs on Sunday. And Proverbs is full of this advice about who you bring with you. Who's your crew? Who are your friends? Who are you running with? Chapter one begins with that. Be careful. And I say all the time to young men, I say, I don't have to be a prophet to know what you will be in one year. All I need to do is look at your friends because you're gonna be doing exactly what they're doing. So choose your friends carefully. But, Matt, my, my buddies, they're a mission field, man. Okay. Big question Are you changing them or are they changing you? When you go with them and they're smoking pot and drinking and partying, are you smoking pot and drinking and partying? When they're chasing ladies, are you chasing ladies? When you're they're flirting with guys, are you flirting with? What, what's the deal? because it boils down to either you're gonna be a thermometer or a thermostat when it comes to your friends. Thermometers just go to the temperature of the room. What everybody else is doing, you're doing. Thermostats set the temperature of the room. Which one are you? Are you setting what your friends do? Are you leading them, right? Are you sheep or a shepherd? Which one are you? If you're shepherding your friends to Jesus, awesome. If they're leading you to trouble, Get out, because this mixed multitude is going to cause all kinds of trouble. And it ends this little section by saying, it was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land. The Talmud, which is the Jewish commentary on the Bible, it's an old commentary, says this about that little phrase. It says, it was a night under protection from malevolent beings. So the Talmud said this watching by Yahweh was actually to protect Israel from some really bad beings. What are those beings? Probably the territorial gods, Deuteronomy 32, these other sections of Egypt, bad beings. I think most of us have no clue about the spirit realm that's always going around us, that does have influence on us, that does throw fiery darts at us, that does cause us to think certain ways. We have no idea about their power. I was just reading on the positive side of that, um, this story about, you can Google her if you want. Her name is Natasha Lapereau. And she had lived in the Middle East, moved to Paris, then moved to England. Um, her dad says we had nothing to do with Christianity. In fact, Christians, I just want to stay away from them. They just bothered me. But as she became a teenager, she made a friend who was in a youth group and she starts going to youth group and then she wants to get baptized. Well, they take this friend and they go to show her Paris where they had lived for a while. Well, his daughter, Natasha, his name is Nadim. Natasha had really bad, bad, um, allergies, allergic reactions to certain foods. So they're in this restaurant at the airport. They get this sandwich. It looks like everything's good. She eats it. She gets on the plane. She starts to get the itchy throat and stuff. So she takes a little medication. Then she starts to break out with hives, but now they're in the air. And so they give an EpiPen shot. That doesn't do it. They give her a second EpiPen shot, and then, shot, and then she goes into anaphylactic shock on the plane. So there's Colleen... Uh, pilot calling everybody, how can we help? A doctor comes out. They do CPR on her for 90 minutes. Keep her going, keep her going. And the dad, Nadeem, is just screaming, ah, please, you fight this. Don't give up, don't give up. And when he's doing that, they've landed now. When he's doing that, he said, and he doesn't believe in any of this, he said he saw six angels show up. Brilliant, beautiful, Beatings, And he said they were full of calmness. But he knew why they were there. So he just starts to freak out in the airplanes. Like, what are you freaking out about? Like, get out of here. No, don't take her. But out of that experience, that was three years ago, he is now a committed follower of Jesus Christ because he saw something in the spirit realm. I pray that we're watchers, that we're watchers. There's a lot more going on than what we know right now but we've been given this equipment called God's spirit that allows us to tune into that kind of stuff. Both dangerous stuff. And I have felt things in India, that I'm, I'm telling you, I always get out of here, but I've also felt things that was, this is God's presence. May we be, may we be watchers like this. So now God's taking care of Pharaoh. His people are moving out. They do have this group, look out. It's gonna cause trouble. And God says this, as a reminder, he says, there's gonna be three rituals that I want you to keep. Ritual number one, Passover. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that's bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised. (laughs) That's an expensive meal, (laughs) man. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, Yahweh brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Passover. These three rituals, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Consecration of the Firstborn, are all commemorating this one event, the Exodus. So Passover is this, the first one. When did the people of Israel get out of Egypt? Was it when they confessed all their sins? Nope. Was it when they got rid of all their idols? Nope. Was it when they memorized a bunch of scripture? Nope. Was it when they loved God with all their heart, mind, and soul? Nope. Was it when they protested in front of Pharaoh? Nope. Was it when they got mad enough? Nope. It's when the lamb was slain. That's when they get out. Like this story is just teleprompting and focusing in on the work of Jesus. So they're supposed to remember this event that they had no, they didn't do any part of it. And they're supposed to get dressed up like they were gonna travel and cook this meal and get together as a family, a whole household family and celebrate it. And they're supposed to recall this, God redeemed us and delivered us out of Egypt. Okay that's I get that Matt but what about all this circumcision in there Well circumcision marked the people as belonging to God's family so they could enjoy this thing called Passover Okay Matt what about circumcision today Well if you read the Bible in the New Testament there's a new mark It's not circumcision it's baptism Baptism replaces the old covenant. That mark, the new mark is, hey, be baptized. And I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad on Sundays, I can quote Acts 2.38 and say, repent and be baptized. That I don't have to say, repent and be circumcised because that would be super awkward. Go see Chad, repent and be circumcised. Much easier, much better. So today, you don't have to be. Our mark is the mark of baptism. And so Passover is this, the first thing is remember that God is Redeemer. And when it comes to Passover, when it comes to the Exodus, when it comes to this, Moses isn't involved. He doesn't have to use his staff for something. He doesn't have to speak to something. He has no part in it. In fact, if you read chapter 12 really carefully, in verse 11, God says, it's my Passover. I'm doing this. It's super clear. A couple of times, this is my work. So the first thing that Israel's told to remember is, remember Passover, that God alone has redeemed you from the house of slavery. Then chapter 13, we get the next two. Yahweh said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast is mine. Consecration is simple. It means to set apart exclusively for God's use. We have a very similar mandate in the New Testament. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says you were bought for a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. You belong to God now. You are owned by him, which means this. My money belongs to God. My marriage belongs to God. My kids belong to God. My truck belongs to God. My chainsaw belongs to God, right? Go on and on and on and on. And when I think about that, there's a part of me that wants to rebel and be like, uh, I don't want to give. I don't want to serve my wife like that. I don't, I don't want to do that, right? I'm going to do my thing. What about me? What about my time? When I do that, I'm acting like Pharaoh. Because remember when Pharaoh was introduced to Yahweh? It's chapter five, verse two. He says this. He says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? When I start saying, I don't want to do that, I'm being Pharaoh again. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? what do you mean I belong to him? That's what I'm being. So how'd this story work out for Pharaoh? Yeah, not so good. Much better is to say, I belong to God. I belong to him. He has purchased me, and I'm gonna glorify him with my body. Consecration. Now, now we get number two, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day, there shall be a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. It shall be a sign on your hand as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, Yahweh has brought you out of Egypt. And you shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. We looked at unleavened bread that feast last week. Here's what it's remembering Passover is God's deliverance, God's redemption. Unleavened bread is when God acts, it's fast. It's so fast, you can't wait for your bread to rise. It took 400 years for God to act, but when he did, get ready. It's radical, incredible change. And I'm telling you, that's good news. Really good news. If you feel like you're in the house of slavery or the house of bondage, and this thing is just getting you, Feast of unleavened bread. When God acts, it's instantaneous. When miracles happen, they're like that, right? So get ready. Tell your kids about this. Tell them that when God acts, you can't even wait for bread to rise. You gotta pull up your robes and start running because that's how fast it happens. Keep that in the front of your mind. Well, Matt, why is that important? So here's an illustration of it. Almost 100 years ago, 105, in 1950, Sir Ernest Shackleton took the Endurance with a crew to try to get to the South Pole. So he was gonna be the first one to do it. You know the story probably, bad things happen. He doesn't make it. They're not in the best gear, right? They don't have Gore-Tex and Patagonia and North Face and gear like that. So they're like in Levi's with Scotch Guard on it. So trouble hits. And what happens is they get stranded on this island and Sir Ernest Shackleton has to go for help. So he takes off, gets in this 22-foot dinghy. You've seen March the Penguins. You know winters in Antarctica. It's unbelievable. He gets in this little 22-foot dinghy, goes 800 miles, lands on this island, hikes over, does a three day trip in 36 hours and finally gets to a place where there can be help. Sets up an expedition to come back to get his crew, 27 men that are stuck on this island. Takes him two years and 22 days to make it back. When he gets back, he saves all 27 of his men. They asked the boss that stayed back on the island with those 27 men, how'd you do it, man? That's brutal. How'd you keep morale up? This is what he said. He said, every morning we would wake up and we would pack our things. And we would say, he promised to come get us. Maybe today's the day. And they would be ready every day for 700 plus days. Get up, pack your stuff, because maybe today's the day. And that's what gave them the hope because they trusted the promise of their boss. Oh, how about us? Do we trust God's promises? Today could be the day. Today could be the day that miracles happen. I'm going to pack up and I am going to be ready every day. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have these things in us These rhythms really, and we'll talk about this at the end, these rhythms of our day that keep us, like the rhythms of Israel that keep us devotions and prayers and meeting together, right? We can ask, why do we do this day by day? Because you never know what day it will be when miracles happen. Might take a long time, like in Israel, but when God acts, it's unleavened bread, it's instantaneous, it's fast, it's immediate. So Passover, God's redemption. Unleavened bread, God's radical speed. Then thirdly and lastly, when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers, verse 12, you shall set apart to Yahweh all the first that opens the womb. All the firstborns of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb or if you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborns of my sons I redeem. And it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. Number three, three fingers, the firstborn. Because God had passed over the firstborn of Israel, their kids, and their cattle. Yahweh says, now they're mine. They belong to me. The men were supposed to be the priests. And maybe some of them are the priests that you see in Exodus 19. It's possible. But the golden calf messes that up and we'll get there, okay? But the idea was this. The idea was every time there's a firstborn animal, every time there's a firstborn child, You are supposed to remind yourself, God redeemed us. I should be dead in Egypt right now. I should be a mud, brick, baking slave, but I'm not, I'm in the promised land. God's given me sons. God's given me cattle. I'm prospering. Every time that a firstborn happened, it reminded you of the goodness of God. That this is God's work. This is God's land. This is God's promises that every good and every perfect gift comes from him. Every time there's a birth, it was a reminder of that. So these three things were supposed to begin to shape Israel. Passover, God's redemption. Unleavened bread, God's speed. Firstborn, God's goodness and gifts and everything that I'm enjoying is from him. supposed to shape Israel beautifully. And then there's one final thing. It's the first step into the wilderness. And then we're done with this chapter. When Pharaoh let people, the people go, God did not lead them by the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. That's a cool promise. Joseph, don't leave me in Egypt. This is not my place. Don't plant me there. Take me home. For Joseph had made them swear solemnly, God will surely visit you and shall carry, you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Ethan on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by by night did not depart from before the people. Here's what you see God takes the long way. Could have gone straight over, but they would have come up against heavily armed people, the Philistines. So God instead directs his people to take the long way because they were not ready for battle. What a good lesson that is. Sometimes I think we think we're ready. God, I'm ready. I'm all packed up, I'm ready, I'm ready to get married. I'm ready for that job, I'm ready for a career, I'm ready to buy a house, I'm ready for ministry. And God says, no, no, you're not ready. We gotta go the long route, or else you'll change your mind and it won't be good. Trust God. If it feels like he's taking you on the long route, trust God. Isaiah 40:31 says this, they that wait on the Lord shall mount up with wings. Like eagle, he had vision. You shall run and not grow weary. You shall walk and not faint. You're not gonna change your mind halfway in. Wait, wait on him. And then God's presence is visibly seen through a pillar of a cloud in the daytime and fire at night. And when the pillar moved, they knew, oh, that's when we're supposed to move. Now you might think, how cool would that be? Just look for the pillar. If you're wondering what job should I take? Oh, there's a pillar over that. And that's the job I'm supposed to take. If you're wondering what house to buy? Oh, the pillars over that. That's the house I'm supposed to buy, right? If you're wondering who's you're supposed to marry? Oh, fire on top of her. Man, she's hot, I'm marrying her. That'd be cool, right? I don't think so. Here's the thing. Did the children of Israel ever mature as God's people? Not really. They never become the adults of Israel. They're always referred to as the children of Israel. And if you read the stories, you should, book of Numbers especially, you notice they kind of act childish. Because I think the way that you actually grow up is when you don't have maybe a pillar of fire. And when you don't have the cloud, where it takes faith. It'd be like this. If my daughter, my 19-year-old daughter, kept coming to me, And she'd be like, hey, everyone's playing outside, dad. Can I go outside and play? What would I say to her? Sweetie, you don't have to ask me that anymore. Like, grow up. That's where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to mature in our faith. We're supposed to be shaped by God's word, the wisdom of God's word, that we become a kind of people that the natural way that we begin to respond to things is godly. That it's not like, should I do this or should I do that? It's, I know what I'm supposed to do because I've been in scripture, because I'm being shaped by God's spirit. I've become a different kind of person. I'm maturing and I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. That's even better. So let me end on this. You have these three things. It's a week-long party and the firstborn being consecrated to God and they're supposed to repeat these things all the time as reminders high churches the the anglicans whoever high churches still have these calendars that are shaped by events and we can as you know non denominational people be like why do they do that that's silly i don't think it's silly actually i think it's biblical you see a lot of it in the old testament And that God had these periodic reminders of what he had done. Because if you don't have them, you'll just skate through them. Like it's good to stop and think about God's redemption and God's miracles and what he can do in a moment and think about all the gifts that it's good to have those markers, right? And here's why. Here's why I think we need stuff like that, ritual, rhythm. I'll call it rhythm because that sounds better. It's like this, Um, a number of years ago, My son and I were hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, and we were going between 15 and 20 miles a day, and in the morning, we'd eat breakfast, and we'd pack all up, and I would look at Elijah, and I would say this to him. I'd say, buddy, how many miles are we going to go before we take our first break? And we'd make the decision right then and there. Well, let's go five miles. That was a good, solid push if we could go five miles. And then we'd start hiking, and typically, I'd be in the back with him, and Pretty soon, a mile would go by and two miles would go by and Elijah would be like, hey, can we take a break now? I'd say, no, buddy. Remember? Remember back at camp, we said we were gonna go five miles before we took a break. Let's keep going. And so three and a half miles, a day, can we take a break now? No, nope. remember we said? We'd go five, I haven't been tired. Right, but we said five miles, right? Let's do five miles. Let's do five miles. So one morning, Elijah's like, why do we do this, dad? I said, here's why we do this. We make, we set our goal in the morning when we're strong, so that when we get weak, it will carry us on. And I still believe that to this day. You set these things in your life in place when you're strong because there's gonna come a moment of weakness. There's gonna come a moment of temptation. There's gonna come a moment of maybe even demonic oppression or attack where you're gonna need these rhythms in your life that carry you through reading the Bible, praying, fasting, gathering, celebration, service. You're gonna need them. They carry you through. And I think if you look at Israel, Israel, the only group of people that maintain their na- national identity without land for 2,000 years, a miracle. How'd they do that? How for 2,000 years did they maintain their national identity when they had no land? No other group has ever made it. Usually within three generations, they're assimilated into the major culture of the land. How'd they do it? These rhythms. These rhythms, Passover, Unleavened Bread, Consecration of the Firstborn, Feast of Booths, Pentecost, Day of Atonement, festival of lights. These rhythms kept them, that when things got weak and weird and scattered, they still had this thing that centered them back on God and redemption and his work and his ability and his miraculous redemption. We need them. And right now we're going through our own little plague. There's no better time. No, like you have time. There's no better time than to say, <clears throat> what am I?" What are the things that I have set, the rhythms, the goals that I've set in my life so that they keep me going, keep me centered on God when things are hard? Bible reading, prayer, talking, getting counsel from people, fasting, have you fasted recently? What a great thing to do. Fast, serving somehow. These are the things these commemorations, these remembrances, these rhythms that keep us strong, that keep us healthy. I pray you're putting them in. So Jesus, today, we're so thankful that we have the story of Exodus as a reminder of who you are, that you will be gracious and gracious and gracious, but eventually your justice comes And we should be people that love your justice because we don't have to worry about getting back at people. We don't have to worry about vengeance. You say vengeance is yours, we can just give it to you and we can love people. May we have in our own lives, our own Passovers, our own unleavened breads, our own consecrations of the firstborn. Are thankful for communion, which is one of them. Bible reading and prayer, Lord, would you lead each of us in how we're supposed to rhythm our lives in ways that help us walk well with you, that grow us into maturity, that keep us strong when life gets hard. So guide us as your people. And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen.